Hello, and welcome to the Truly Twisted Minds podcast. My name is Amber. And I'm Trish. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you're new to the podcast, we give you a very warm welcome. We're very happy to have you find our show. And we appreciate each and every person who has been with us since the beginning and continues to tune in every two weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to all the support and listens. We have reached over 1,000 listens and we couldn't have done it without all of your help. So thank you very much. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue to listen and spread the word to any of your friends. And just as a little quick reminder, um, we do have some social media profiles. They are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And the handle is at Twisted Minds Pod. All lowercase, all one word. And we don't post a lot, so we don't inundate you. So subscribe. <laughs> we would like to uh, dedicate this particular episode to uh, the memory of the DeFeo family as we are going to be covering Ronnie DeFeo Jr. So um, rest in peace to the family and Amber's going to start us off. Okay, so Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. was born on September 26, 1951 to uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and his wife Louise. He is the oldest of five children. Uh, He had two younger sisters, Dawn Teresa DeFeo, born July 29, 1956, and Allison Louise DeFeo, born August 16, 1961, as well as two younger brothers, Mark Gregory DeFeo, born September 4, 1962, and John Matthew DeFeo, born October 24, 1965. And from the beginning, the family dynamic was what you would call rocky at best. Um, Big Ronnie, as they called him, had an undeniably bad temper. And he was um, known to have fits of rage and be physically abusive to his wife Louise and the kids. But in particular, uh, Ronnie Jr., Wow. I he was also known as Butch. I can't even imagine growing up in a household like that. And due to Ronnie being the eldest son, he took the brunt of the abuse because, of course, being the oldest son, he had the most expectations placed upon him. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, I concur. I can't imagine growing up in that type of toxic environment. I I can't even imagine. I mean, obviously, you know, never being in that kind of situation, it's like it's hard to wrap your mind around it. But it's like you see so many people that are in that grow up like that, but don't end up killing their entire families. So. Yeah. But it started really young for uh, young Ronnie because what was it? He was not even two years old the first time that he basically got pushed into a wall by his father because he pissed him off. And nobody even knows why they were pissed off. I guess they were just the family was sitting together watching a show. And um, this was reportedly told by um, 
his uncle. Yeah, I believe so. That um, apparently he did something to anger his father. And one minute the kid was sitting there. The next minute he was slamming up against the wall. And wow. this is just a tiny tot. I mean, what, it's like what could are- he have done to really bring on that kind of thing? Especially if nobody noticed. Right. So I'm wondering if it could be, you know, like we had talked about earlier, a combination of maybe there could have been some head trauma. Perhaps. And just the negative environment he was brought up mm-hmm. in. And this type of thing didn't stop. Like mental issues that yeah being mentally and physically abused can screw a person up mm-hmm. as we have found in our research mm-hmm. along it, the way it here. plays a big role in a lot of things yeah okay so as he was growing up uh he was an overweight child and he was reportedly a kid with a sullen behavior like with a sullen attitude Aww. and he took a whole lot of abuse and taunting from the other kids at school and the other children would call him names and ridicule him and obviously that would upset him right um when he would tell his family his father would push him to stand up for himself don't let them do this to you blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. however he wasn't afforded the same luxury at home and Big Ronald had zero tolerance for disobedience or backtalking or what have you. And while he was pushing him to stand up for himself and don't let himself be bullied or embarrassed at school, at home, he better not talk back. Or he'd get his butt handed to him. Jeez, double standard much? Is that double standard? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Absolutely. It's like, wow. And once he reached, like, adolescence, he, you know, he started to grow like kids do. Mm -hmm. And at this point, he began standing up for himself and standing up to his dad. They'd have these shouting matches that would, like, it would turn on a dime into, like, a violent, like, boxing match, essentially. They would, like, be physically fighting. And it got to the point that even his father recognized okay um this rage that he's displaying isn't normal (laughs) you think when an abusive person says hey this is not normal you know it's a big mess right (laughs) um so at that point they the parents uh big ronnie and louise opted to send ronnie to a psychiatrist but he had no intention of partaking in the treatment. And this was when he was a teenager, right? Between the ages of 12 and 14, I would say. Okay. Because adolescence. Yep. Basically, it was described as he would sit there and he was passive aggressive and he would just say, I don't need help. Wow. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to be here. And he just wouldn't partake in the treatment at all. He was in complete denial that there were any issues. So it did a whole lot of no good. Wow. (laughs) Whole lot of nothing. So when that didn't work, 
mom and dad decided that it would be a great idea to try this different approach, which essentially goes, we'll give him whatever he wants. We'll buy him stuff. We'll, you know, we'll give him whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. And, you know, that's a healthy solution. Wow. It's like, hey, I'm not getting my way, so give me money. Oh, yeah, here you go. Basically, um, if he wanted money, all he had to do was ask. And if he didn't feel like asking, he'd just go and take it. Wow. With no repercussions. And by the time he was 14... He was given a $14,000 speedboat to drive on the river behind their home. Just because. Wow. Yeah. Wish you could see me right now. My mouth is like hanging open. It really (laughs) is. I'm glad there's no flies in the room. (laughs) I mean, seriously. That does that seem like the best option to anybody else? Because it sure doesn't to me. No, and I'm about to throw in my catchphrase here. Who the hell does that? (laughs) So yeah, that was how his next few years of life went. He just got his way. So about when he was about 17, he got kicked out of his uh, parochial school. And I'm assuming it was for poor conduct or poor grades or whatever. It didn't really go into detail in the research I did. Yeah, we had a lot of issues with the research. It was very, it was, a lot of things were vague. Yeah. Like, especially in the early life type area. But we did our, did some digging and found a bit. Yep. So now he would um, also be, be getting into some drug use. And specifically mentioned that he used speed mm-hmm. and LSD and heroin. Oh, that's great combinations. Lovely. If you've got mental issues already, mm-hmm. that's just going to totally compound everything. Can we say powder keg? Pretty much. And also with that stuff, it also affects your um, mental state, mm-hmm. as we all know. Yep. And so he would have bouts of what they would call psychotic behavior, quote unquote. Um, There's a particular story that I came across that he, um, Ronnie, had gone hunting with some of his friends. And they were in the woods and for whatever reason, uh, Ronnie turned on his friend, who he'd known for a long time, Mm -hmm. and pointed his loaded gun at him, at his face. There was no specified reason. He just turned and held this gun on the, on the kid. He basically was stone-faced, watched this kid go pale, and then book it out of there. Right. Afterwards, he just lowered his gun and acted like nothing happened. He even went so far as later on asking his friend, why'd you leave so soon? Like, what the fuck, mate? I mean, you pointed a gun at me. I don't want to die. I'm out of here. Right? Hello. How he could not see the repercussions of that. It's like, uh. Like yeah, you said, cause... what the fuck, mate? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, about a year later, when Ronnie was 18, he was given a job at um, the car dealership his grandfather owned, which his father also worked for. And by Ronnie DeFeo's own admission, the job was not really a job. 
In fact, it didn't matter whether he went to work or not. He was paid weekly either way. Okay, I wish I could get that. He basically just received a paycheck for nothing. Wow. It was just a cake job, essentially. And he would use the cash to, you know, do things with his car, which, incidentally, his parents also paid for. Surprise, surprise. And for alcohol and drugs. And his behavior continued to escalate in frequency of violence and, like, shouting matches and stuff. Oh, Lord. And there's another story that came up at this point that um, his parents were fighting. So Big Ronnie and Louise were in the argument. Mm -hmm. And Ronnie decided he was going to break it up. Well, what's his solution to break up this argument? He goes and gets a shotgun, loads a shell in it, and goes back to the room where the argument's happening. He walks over to them and apparently he put this gun in his father's face. And he says, quote unquote, leave that woman alone. I'm going to kill you, you fat fuck. This is it. Whoa. He pulled the trigger after he said that. But for whatever reason, the gun didn't, didn't fire. Wow. Otherwise, his dad would have been dead at that point. Right. And that was when he was 18? Yes. Wow. He literally didn't have a big reaction when the gun didn't go off either. He just turned around and walked out of the room. Huh. And And this is someone who is like kind of a gun aficionado. Like he knew how to like work guns and everything. So it should have. It was wild that it didn't go off. Right. And so he just they basically described his demeanor as casual indifference and he just walked out of the room and if that stuff isn't foreshadowing i don't know what is right because it's um what five years later that the murders would happen yes because he was what 23 23 yeah yeah so yeah he had this attitude and he was walking around like he owned the world and nobody told him different and like you said he was really into guns and he had a big collection and all of that which is so scary so we go along a few years and you know kind of status quo after that point maybe an altercation in there here and there and everywhere but nothing like volatile like that came up again but in the weeks that were prior to the tragedy that we will cover he apparently ronnie apparently became dissatisfied with the money he was being paid for his quote-unquote job oh really Mm Hmm. so he had been asked by a fellow co-worker to take some money to the bank for the car dealership okay and between the, there was about a thousand or eleven hundred in cash, and then the rest was like in check form. It amounted to the amount of twenty thousand dollars. Ooh, that's a lot of money. So instead of getting it to the bank, he quote unquote got robbed. Oh, really? By this accomplice that he had um, hired or whatever. Mm hmm. And um, he had also convinced the second person that was going with him from the car dealership Mm -hmm. to 
say they were robbed as well. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe he took a split of the share too, but they took the money and they split it between them. Wow. So they leave at approximately 1230 in the afternoon to go make this deposit. Okay. Two hours pass before they come back to the dealership and say, oh, we were robbed. Two hours. Who's going to wait that long to, to say that? And then they're not even going to report it. They're just going to say at the car dealership, oh, we were robbed. Sorry for you. Wow. And but like, okay, so the car dealership didn't think that this was suspicious? No, they did. Okay. Um, so his father ended up calling the police. Okay. And they um, reported it. And they wanted, they began talking to um, Ronnie. Okay. And you know how typically if you've committed a crime, you're going to, you know, go play a part and go along with it and be like, yeah, this happened and this happened. But um, he didn't. He began getting defensive when they were questioning him, especially when it came to, okay. Oh, Lord. You know, why did it take you this long mm -hmm. for this? And, you know, they were bringing up all their suspicions on right. why this looked fishy. Yeah. And he reportedly became enraged and defensive, pounding his fist on a car in the lot and cursing at the cops. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm stellar acting don't you think oh totally the cops opted that to back off at this point however they later asked ronnie to come in and uh look at some mugshots to identify a suspect for the crime okay and at first ronnie agreed to go in mm -hmm. but then he backed out at the last minute so his father's like why didn't you go talk to them why didn't you cooperate with the police right and he's like, you've got the devil on your back, quote unquote. And his son was like, you fat prick, I'll kill you. Um, and then he ran and ran to his car and sped off. Okay. <laughs> yeah, obviously this was weird. Okay, so. He just kind of, this was like a couple of weeks before the tragedy occurred okay and basically they were at it was kind of like they were at the at the um culmination like the height of their disagreements and arguing and all it that it was coming to a head it yeah it was the head was about to blow right off and Then we end up with the crime. So on November 13th, 1974, lovely day. Hey, don't blame my birthday for it. I know. <laughs> it was four years before you were born. So at about uh, 6.30 p.m., DeVeo had gone down to Henry's Bar which was a tavern just down the street from his house. He had ran up to his best friend, uh, Robert Bobby Kelsky, and said that his parents were dead. Thinking DeFeo was exaggerating, he went with DeFeo to his house at 112 Ocean Avenue, along with fellow patrons John Altieri, 
Joey Yeswait, Al Saxton, and William Scordamalia. I so apologize if I butchered that. Uh, (laughs) Owners of Henry's Bar. The six men piled into Butch's uh, 1970 Buick Electra 225, and um, Butch had climbed in the back while Bobby took the wheel. When they got to the house, Bobby had ran in with no thought of his own safety for himself and ran upstairs to the parents' room, where he found the senior DeFeo, age 43, dead from a gunshot wound to the back. And his wife, Louise, age 42, was buried under the blanket, and it was not certain if she was alive or dead. Right. But, yeah. And then Bobby, at this point, was looking like he was going to pass out, so some of the other uh, patrons who had accompanied DeFeo to the house searched the rest of the house. Um, They found um, younger brother John DeFeo, 9, and Mark DeFeo, 12, were found dead in the bedroom across the hall, both shot in the back. Mm-hmm. And DeFeo's sisters, Dawn, 18, and Allison, 13, were later found by police, who had been contacted, obviously, after the brothers had been found. Uh, the younger DeFeo seemed to be inconsolable, sobbing, and carrying on. When questioned, he told authorities he had gone into work at the car dealership early that morning. Mm-hmm. And um, supposedly had worked to shift, but I guess he had been, like, day drinking and everything and he stated he tried calling his house several times during the day but got no answer when he finally went home around 6 30 that's when he found his parents dead and while he was speaking with authorities investigators at the house find ammunition that matches the gunshots in all six victims dum, dum, dum. yep uh the murder weapon was a 35 caliber uh lever action marlin 336c rifle that's a mouthful and um, his parents were both shot twice, while his siblings were only shot once. Huh. Once each. And I find it really curious that um, each victim was found laying on their stomachs. Right. Especially uh, since Mark DeFeo had recently suffered a sports injury. And he either had like a broken leg or something. Um, he had both crutches and a wheelchair. And he would have been really uncomfortable in that uh, stomach laying position right and while being questioned defeo blamed the murders on a mob hit by a man named uh louis fellini (laughs) yes because the mob is gonna want to kill this whole family right for no apparent reason yep and so they put defeo in protective custody because of this, because he mentioned the mob. Of course. And, I mean, better to be safe than sorry, but still. Yeah. And I I can't remember. In our research, I think, wasn't there a possible tie to that elder DeFeo possibly having mob ties? I can't remember, but. It was alleged. I don't alleged. know that it, I don't yeah. know that it was for certain, but. Right. Yeah, there. That was a possibility, not like a huge possibility, but no, no. And so they had had uh, DeFeo in protective custody until the following day, when he actually confessed to police that he killed his family. Not to mention, I think the mob guy ended up having an airtight alibi that he wasn't even in the state of New York at the time. Exactly. Yep. It's Um, like really right. 
So he told police that he had showered after the murders and discarded his clothes in a sewer drain and the rifle in a nearby river, which they ended up finding everything. He had changed his story several times over the years. And then the ones that, like, stuck out to me were, like, you know, the devil made me do it. Or I heard voices. I heard voices. Wasn't there even... There was a they were alleging at one point. I don't know if it was at this time or later on that they supposedly the house was built on a Native American burial ground, right? Which was disproven, debunked, debunked by Native Americans. Even mm-hmm. it's like really. <laughs> and then supposedly a figure in a black cloak, presumably his sister Dawn handing him the rifle and telling him to shoot his parents, then his siblings, so there would be no witnesses. Mm-hmm. He'd even stated that after he'd shot their parents and left for a while, um, he had come back and Dawn had shot the younger siblings. He had gotten so mad at her, he wrestled with her with the gun, and it discharged, killing her. Now, mm-hmm. there may or may not be some merit here, as uh, there had been some gunpowder on her nightgown, But her nightgown wasn't rumpled or anything, and she was still found in the same position as everybody else, uh, face down. Right. So, presumably, she was just killed, and he was just trying to take some heat off of himself. Right. And um, because of, you know, his changing stories and everything, he was subsequently arrested and charged with the murders. Mm Mm-hmm. And at this point, we're going to stop for a little break, a little pause. Station identification. I suppose you could say that. And we're going to have an ad from our sponsor, Anchor. And we will be back to cover the trial portion and the remainder of the story of Ronald DeFeo Jr. and the Amityville murders. So we hope you are enjoying so far and we'll be back shortly thank you hello and welcome back to the truly twisted minds podcast i am amber and i'm trish thanks for sticking with us and we're gonna jump right back into our show and discuss the trial of ronnie defeo yay so The case finally came to trial on Tuesday, October 14th, 1975, almost a full year after the murders took place. Mm -hmm. And can I just say, I find it weird how, like, back then, the trials seemed to, like, happen so much quicker. Well, it's almost like there were, like, less criminals, but there was a lot less technology and... Yeah. Methods of, you know... I don't know. Just random thoughts. Sorry. <laughs> methods of uh, investigation were way different. Mm-hmm. The advent of forensic technology was not a thing. Right. So, it made things a lot harder. So, anyway, the prosecution, they realized that they had a huge responsibility to show that Ronnie DeFeo was aware 
of his actions mm-hmm. that he was not in fact insane he had no reason to plead insanity and that they put him away so he wouldn't be a danger to anyone in their community right um the prosecutor was a man named gerard sullivan he was assistant district bleh, assistant district attorney with the suffolk county new york office and even though they had a confession despite the fact that they could that ronnie could lead them to the evidence Mm -hmm. where he had um disposed of the shell casings the clothes the gun and despite the fact that the 35 caliber rifle was positively id'd as the murder weapon he knew that he still had his work cut out for him because like you would think that it would kind of be a slam dunk you would think you know all of the physical evidence physical evidence the confession yada 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 but it was something that he knew they'd explore because they had no other options in finding a way to get him out of it and so basically the prosecution the prosecution had studied um ronnie and his actions and observed his traits and how he interacted with people mm-hmm. and they basically saw right away that he was very evasive uh, he was a pathological liar and because yeah, his story changed hundreds of times did it not and yeah i mean in one sitting i i know there was a video we watched and it was what years after he had been convicted, mm-hmm. but he's he told sitting like, there. What three, three or four different stories in, in one sitting? In one sitting, yeah. He couldn't stay consistent at all. It's like okay, which first is it? it was, I killed everybody. Then it was, I only killed my parents, and then my sister killed my siblings, and then I killed her. Yeah, and then what he said, the mob did it at one point, and mm-hmm. blah, blah blah. I mean, he couldn't keep his his story straight right but um so basically his goal was to prove that there was no mental disease or defect Mm -hmm. and the they ended up going over all the pieces of evidence, but they did bring in the, you know, bring in question whether he was insane at the time that it, the um, murders happened. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it could have been a temporary insanity, you know, with all of the shit that he'd been going through with his dad. I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, that's a possibility i mean because you can only push someone so far before they snap fair point but with the way his story changed and true his behaviors um that just doesn't jive so each attorney had a like expert witness in like psychology and that sort of thing 
So apparently the defense went first. Okay. And they really stuck to um, a short amount of questioning. And it was basically asking him, you know, how they had asked him questions like, do you recognize this person? And is this your mother or whatever? And he's like, no, I don't recognize this person. And then they show a picture of the dad and he's like, did you kill your father? He's like, did I kill him? I killed them all. Yes, sir. I killed them all in self-defense. And essentially he asserted that if he didn't kill them, they were going to kill him. And as far as he was concerned, what he did was self-defense and there was nothing wrong with it. And the first time he introduced the self-defense thing was at the trial, right? Yep. Wow. And he he stated, quote-unquote, when I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So, basically, he's trying to show that, like, he isn't all there mm-hmm. in his assessment. Yeah. But, um... Not doing a very good job there, buddy. Basically, um... He essentially said that he felt very good at the time of the murders and he he said he didn't know why he didn't do it. He did it. Or he didn't know why it felt very good, but he remembers um being it feeling very good. Okay, that's not creepy at all. So basically he when um Ronnie was on the stand, the questioning ended up provoking him into threatening the prosecutor's life (laughs) he was like you think i'm playing if i had any sense which i don't i'd come down there and kill you now you know wow so yeah they have brilliant move have the um dr daniel schwartz was retained for the defense and basically he was alleging that he um, had psychosis and disassociation and criminal insanity and blah, 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 blah. And, basic, and once the prosecution questioned him, it, it just ticked him off that they said, well, this right here does not point to a person that is unaware of their actions. He's and the basically they're trying to say that he was his like for example specifying like the cleaning up of the crime scene or whatever. Right. He was cleaning up for himself. He wasn't trying to clean up the murder, he was just trying to clean up his guilt in the whole thing. And how because he took because a shower he, afterwards, or because what? he got rid of the evidence, and but he left the bodies at the scene. There was no doubt that anybody to anybody that the family was, you know, murdered or whatever, right? Right, they were, they were obviously killed, but he was trying to disassociate himself, quote unquote, by these actions. It wasn't because he was fully aware at the time. Is what that he was. makes no damn sense whatsoever. Right, right. And as I was reading it, I was like, what the hell? 
And this is the psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever that's spewing this. Huh? Yeah, that's a psychologist. That was him trying to testify that his mindset was to clean himself of the guilt. Not to clean up the crime, but to clean himself okay, of the guilt. Someone, Absolve himself of Someone it. needs to see the psychiatrist and check him out, because that's like, that makes no sense. And then when they, um... The, uh, prosecution's, uh, expert witness was Dr. Harold Zolan and basically he his assessment was that Ronnie suffered from antisocial personality um, which basically says that they are fully aware of their actions are fully able to comprehend the difference between right and wrong Mm -hmm. but are motivated by an impervious self-centered attitude Okay. Basically, that he was aware of what he was doing. And he, he did it because he wanted to. Consequences be damned. He don't care What's what gonna... anybody thinks. Yep. Okay. So. And to me, that's like the scariest kind of personality. Exactly. Someone who has no remorse. No in their remorse. heart for no regard for anybody else's feelings no nope. or life even mm-hmm. you know you piss someone like that off and they can you know put take... your lights out like that exactly and it's like another saturday night to them yeah and because his um the way he described the situation and his diagnosis of DeFeo mm-hmm. in clear, he could clearly discuss what it was, how it would affect him and how it would make him do what he did. The jury bought, they were, they had more faith in that explanation than they did the other one, which right. was kind of like, woo, whatever. Yeah. And so they, um, both lawyers did their summations and then they um jury went in for deliberations and they came back with at first they were split ten to two. Oh. Um there were two holdouts who were uncertain about his mental state. And so they had to review, like, his testimony and stuff like that. But they ended up coming back at unanimous decisions. That's a good thing. So on Friday, November 21st, 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. Wow. And two weeks after that, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for all six counts. Okay. But after that, he petitioned for appeals and retrials and the like. And 
each and every time they were declined and his convictions were upheld right and whatnot i mean and this is where he would start changing his story a whole lot like oh i you know my sister was part of it and blah mm-hmm. blah blah and yeah as recently as 2002 he attempted to get a retrial based on that story and you know what i find really strange um he DeVeo actually um passed away just uh fairly recently back in what March. was it March? March twelfth yeah. of twenty twenty one. Yep. And he was sixty nine years old and we have no idea how. I had heard it allegedly something to do with COVID nineteen, but nothing's been officially said in regards right. to it because they quote unquote can't give that information to anyone but family. It's like, okay. Yeah, you see people every day, like celebrities and stuff, with their cause of death right out there. Right? It's like, okay, what makes him so special that the cause of death can't be? Then again, I guess if a family member went to the press and said, hey, you know, this is the reason. Hi, Nala. (laughs) This is the reason that it was happening, that he died. You know, it would be different. Yeah. Than an official from like the city or county saying it. Right. Unless it was like some sort of like government conspiracy or something. Uh, highly unlikely. Yeah, I don't know. Don't you think they would have done it years ago when, you know, things were easier to hide? <laughs> True. I don't know. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. Maybe I'm underthinking it. Who knows? What say I you are. Uh, faithful listeners do at you any rate think, he's gone <laughs> do you think there was some sort of some sort of cover-up and conspiracy or do you think it was just they figured nobody would care or they really just were tied by their rules and regulations their hands were tied and they couldn't really specify yeah let us know on our twitter page also, what do you think? Uh, do you feel like he was sane? Do you feel like he was crazy? Do what do you, you feel make like... of all of the stories that he's made up? Do you think his sister played a role in it? I honestly think it's a load of bilge water, but some people think it's true. I mean... Some people allege that he had um, co- like helpers, that there was more than one murderer. Yeah, I don't think even that. even though even though that was all perpetrated by the same weapon. Yeah, that that I find hard to believe. There was a story that he drugged the family before they went to bed, and that's why nobody moved. Right. But I don't know if that's true or false. I'm and my understanding is they didn't find any drugs in the no, autopsies. Uh-uh. No, they didn't find any drugs, and I think there were only the mother and then um, the younger sister or the youngest sister were the only two that like actually moved or something yeah look like they were like woken up right right do you think he had help do you think that there was more than one person I in the home so. do you think there was someone that even if he committed all the crimes like he committed all the murders mm-hmm. was there someone that was assuring that none of these people moved from their beds that the world will never know 
Yeah. But they, well, I don't know how long ago it was, but they did find another gun in the river. That's true. Remember, they found that revolver in the river. Yeah. But it, you know, it hadn't shot anyone. Everyone was shot with the same rifle. Right. So. I don't know. I mean, the Sister Dawn could possibly have been part of it. Because, I mean, she suffered the same abuse that he did. But at the same time, like you said, it didn't even look like she had moved. Didn't, True. There wasn't signs of a struggle in the room. Right. Because if know. there had been signs of a struggle, you know, her nightgown would have been all rumpled and all this other stuff. And there would have been, it would have shown in the room. Mm-hmm. And it really did not look like there had been a struggle of no. any sort. Mm-mm. But yeah, that is the twisted tale of Ronald DeFeo Jr. And I guess fortunately for the world, he has moved on from this earthly plane. Probably down in hell. Probably. If if there's a hell, that's where he's partying now. Yep. All right. So that does conclude our show for this time. And in two weeks... We will be back on Sunday, July 4th, and this time we travel down under to cover the case of Ivan Malat, a.k.a. the Backpack Killer. Yep, and this is kind of a little thank you to our Australian listeners, because it seems, according to our um, analyses, that um, a lot of our listeners are from australia so there's a big chunk of our listeners from australia so So thank you and we will be covering ivan and with that we hope you've enjoyed our episode this week and we cannot wait to get back with our next show so until then again i'm for i'm amber for the last time (laughs) and i'm trish la-di-da let's Let's repeat our names over and over. And this is our lovely Truly Twisted Minds podcast. And we cannot wait for the next one. Until then, have a good couple of weeks. And stay safe. And thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you. We love you all. Bye. Bye.